It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios. Welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. interesting introduction a man like Charles Murray ever got because <laughs> to start the show with he's got to go that must bring a lot of memories that happened on March the 2nd of 2017 you may remember those of you who have listened to me for a while we did cover it he was taking the stage to speak at Middlebury College in Middlebury Vermont uh, and uh, the students there were well prepared they did not want him to speak uh, they shouted him down and you heard it was all about white supremacy so what we're talking about in the news headlines isn't really that new. It's been happening in college campuses for a while. But uh, that particular protest became very violent. And one of the professor he was interviewed by and sponsored by was injured. And, and there's a lot to that story. Uh, but let me just tell you for a second that Charles Murray is a political scientist. He's a writer and public speaker. He's the Hayek Emeritus Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of several books. Uh, just a few to mention are The Bell Curve, Coming Apart, and uh, the one we're going to talk about today, which is new book, Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America by Encounter Books. And so Charles joins us this morning. Good morning, Charles. Good morning. So I'm guessing that that little clip brought back some memories. Oh, well, yes, it, 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 it uh, brings back memories. At this point, they are uh, Okay. At the time that it happened, my uh, person, the person who was with me, who had been moderating my speech, uh, was severely injured. So, yes. the at the time, it it was unhappy. Oh now yes, and they, didn't they even block your car as you were trying to leave? I mean, it got really out of hand. And you know, there had been so many protests up to that point. A lot of people that uh, probably you, you that you know that I know who were trying to speak on college campuses were beginning to be shouted down on a regular basis. But this is the first bit of violence I remember. It, it had, did you anticipate that level of violence? No, it was it was a, a huge surprise. All the more so because my daughter graduated from Middlebury. Oh, uh, so about five years, about uh, 2007, I think. Anyway, uh, my wife and I had been up to Middlebury, what, a couple of dozen times, and we knew the place well. 
And to have uh, this happen at a place that I did know and like so much was surreal. Yes, and very disappointing. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. So you are very controversial. The things that you write uh, are uh, you are a great intellect, highly respected, but you say hard things, and people will see that after we have our discussion here. But um, we're going to talk about what you call two truths about race in America, and these are difficult discussions, and they'll be very controversial with you and me also. But I want to talk a little bit about your past, if you don't mind, because I was reading a bit of your biography, and I thought it was kind of fun. You were from the Midwest. I am too. You were raised in um, Iowa, and, um, were, you know, was your, your dad was an executive for Maytag, right? That's right. Uh, I lived in Newton, Iowa, from the time I was born until the time I left to go to college at the age of 18. And, you know, if you wake me up in the middle of the night and ask me uh, where I'm from, I'm not going to say Maryland, where I've lived for 30-some years. I'll say I'm from Iowa. You know, it's funny, because I was raised in southern Illinois in a little town of 6,000, and I, I lived there, well, until I was 18. and uh, But that's still home, too. Same thing. I'm actually very proud of my upbringing. I was uh, raised in a small town. It's actually a great way to start life. And uh, it's a great yeah. foundation. Uh, and I think people in uh, other parts of the country underestimate the uh, chauvinism that people in Iowa have about their state. Uh, we've, we're very proud of our state, even though a lot of people just consider it fly, flyover country. I think it's well, uh, a wonderful place to grow up. Well, you know, I have to defend Illinois, and I have nothing to say about you. My state used to be great. It was, you know, the land of Lincoln and uh, um, all these other great people, but not so much. But, um, it, you know, I often think, uh, I've, I thought through the years, I wondered why so many smart people happen to be raised on the East Coast, and they must be exponentially smarter than people raised in Iowa and Illinois, where I came from, because look what they achieve, and they go to Harvard and all of this. And so that's a kind of interesting. Your whole, your personal story is a little bit, uh, how you started a little bit about that. You did a little, you did kind of good on the SAT score, right? Yeah, uh, I was part of the, of the generation that got the advantage of a huge shift in the policy of the elite schools. They systematically, during the night, starting in the 1950s, started looking for talent wherever it was. They uh, went out and they became magnets for for a lot of really talented kids. And uh, they, the result was a, a fundamental change in their student bodies. So they were, in a sense, uh, well, in a sense, it switched from being a university, Harvard, a university with a lot of rich kids some of whom were smart, to a university with a lot of smart kids, some of whom were rich. <laughs> That's good. I like that. And, all the, and so just to kind of, if I can explain this in my rudimentary way, the SAT really tests a broad base of knowledge, where the ACT, I think, tests thinking skills more. That's my rudimentary assessment. Um, and so you were able to do really well on this test, and you, then you landed your place at Harvard and later got your a PhD, I think, from MIT. So uh, you were launched very well. Uh, interesting to me that you went into the Peace Corps. Were you a, were you kind of a, well, let's see, were you a, a against the war and were you, you know, were you no, a long-haired hippie? No, it had just... nothing to do with that. <laughs> no, no, no. I went into, I volunteered for Peace Corps in my senior year, which means it was the fall of 1964 and winter of spring of 1965 that I was thinking about going, at which time 
we had not made the announcement we were standing in Vietnam. Now, it's very simple. Look, you're, you're a kid in Newton Island, you want to go to Harvard. You're at Harvard, you want to go to some strange country the other side of the world. I was the typical 22, 23-year-old. I wanted to see new things and new places, and this seemed like a real good way to do it. So I, yeah. I joined the Peace Corps, not out of idealism, but hoping I'd have adventures. Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people did. I think the Peace Corps was something, well, as everything else, it was not as uh, politically, uh, it was really a way to serve. Uh, and, and those days, and a lot of people, a lot of really fine people went into the Peace Corps. Now I know I'm kind of putting casting, casting disparagement on others that go into it now. I don't know. I'm assuming there's some political finagling there now. But um, you ended up in Thailand, um, which is interesting. You know, Thailand's kind of a mysterious country that I don't think a lot of people, a lot of Americans maybe have been to. But you actually lived there for a long time after the Peace Corps and married a, a Thai woman. Why did you stay there so long other than your love for your wife? Well, it started out uh, as staying over there because she, she'd been a Fulbright scholar here in the United States, and uh, she had a teaching obligation at the university in Bangkok uh, that she had to work off as part of the Fulbright thing. So that, that initially started as staying after Peace Corps, but then I got jobs uh, working for contractors for the U.S. government because there was an insurgency in Thailand and and there was a lot of development assistance to win the hearts and minds of the villagers. And that work was very interesting and rewarding. And so I ended up staying until 70, 1970, when I came back uh, and entered graduate school at MIT. Then I went back for another year to do research in my dissertation. So all in all, I was six years in Thailand, and basically I grew up in my 20s in Thailand rather than in the United States. Yeah, I, I get that. You said, you said uh, at least according to Wikipedia, <laughs> laugh track, you did say that uh, your worldview was fundamentally shaped by your time in Thailand. How can that be? I mean, what, what do you mean by it, that? Well, it was very, uh, well I, I could do an hour and a half on it, but I won't. I'll give you the, <laughs> the Cliff Notes version. Okay. I was involved in village development, and unlike in Peace Corps, in Peace Corps you look at everything from Bangkok's point of view. The Thai government is trying to help the villagers by building wells and privies. All right. You when you're out in the villages, uh, talking to the villagers and seeing it from their perspective, all these programs from Bangkok, which Bangkok thought were being, you know, great thing for the village, don't look the same. And in fact, a lot of the things that happened were being done by officials in Bangkok who hadn't a clue what the villagers' real priorities were. And uh, meanwhile, the villages, and this really impressed me, the villages on their own were acting as very competent, self-governing units. And I suddenly realized that the way it looks from the, from the top, from Washington, D.C., that's Bangkok, is way different from the way it looks down at ground level. And that stayed with me evermore. And the second thing that stayed with me was what actually goes on in a lot of these development projects where you have a lot of people who are nice people and uh, they actually aren't getting much done. And I thought this is, oh, you know, this is in developing countries. Well, it turned out an awful lot of well-meaning social programs in the United States are the same thing. <laughs> they're nice people, but you go, go down to the office or the place where they're functioning and not much is going on. 
It's kind of like human nature, don't you think? It's the kind yeah. of like human well, nature. It's kind of like government bureaucracy is what it's like. Yeah. Yes, and people responding to that bureaucracy, the net effect of it. I think of that with uh, the exporting of communism now and the psychological stuff they've done. They did, Mao did, and that Stalin did, and Lenin did. And uh, they're doing the same thing here now because it works, because it's the humanity, you know, kind of the, the bells ring the same sometimes. And speaking of that, then you started writing a lot. Uh, with the Many of the controversial things you've written, Charles, are about uh, race and IQ, the bell curve, um, all that kind of stuff. I would just, I'd be curious before we get into the content of that, is there something that happened in your travels or in your past experience that made you start thinking about this in no, particular? No, Sandy, I've got to correct you. Okay. I, I wrote, I wrote uh, in the bell curve, we had one, we had one chapter describing uh, IQ scores across races, and we also had a couple of chapters that were very critical of uh, affirmative action but the book was 900 pages long. Its subtitle was uh, Intelligence and Class Structure in American Life, and most of it was devoted to showing the relationship of IQ to social and economic outcomes among a white population. So the bell curve was not about race. I know, I understand its reputation. I'm telling you, you pick up the book, that's not what you're going to get. You mean the Southern the, Poverty Law Centers got something wrong? You mean they, they mischaracterized <laughs> your writing? You take, you take everything that the Southern Poverty Law Center says, reverse it, and you, you're probably closer to the truth. Yeah. The, the only other thing that uh, I've, I've written that dealt with race uh, is this new book, new book, that I'm returning to this topic 20, what, 27 years after the bell curve was published, and I'm returning to this topic now because the public dialogue has gotten so crazy that I felt I had to. But, yes, and for, but, but, so but, but let, my work has been has not been about race. Okay. It has been about uh, changes in America's social structure. Okay, good. Good correction. Uh, let me just say the book that we're going to discuss when we return is called Facing Reality, Two Truths About Racism in America. Uh, Charles Murray is our guest, and this is going to be interesting, so stay, stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Andy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream that my four little children will one day live a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Now I have a dream that we will implement love, not hate, or supporting another Jim Crow's agenda. CRT is not an honest dialogue. It is a tactic that was used by Hitler and the Ku Klux Klan on slavery very many years ago to dumb down my ancestors so we could not think for ourselves. CRT is racist. It is abusive. It discriminates against one's color. Let me educate you. An honest dialogue does not impress, oppress. An honest dialogue does not implement hatred or injustice. It's to communicate with deceiving, without deceiving people. Today, we don't need your agreement. We want action in a backbone for what we asked for today, to ban CRT. We don't want your political advertisement to divide our children or belittle them. Think twice before you indoctrinate such racist theories. You cannot tell me what is or is not racist. Look at me. 
I had to come down here today to tell you to your face that we are coming together and we are strong. This will not be the last. Greet and meet respectfully. That was Keisha King. She was uh, talking to the school board in her town in Florida and setting them straight in no uncertain terms. I don't need to tell any of you that critical race theory and issues of race and voting and fraud, it's all about race and race and race and race. It has been uh, for a very long time. But now I think the forces that would divide us over this are getting stronger and stronger in the military, in the schools, everywhere, in corporations. And so Charles Murray, our guest today, has written this book called Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. And before I have him actually talk to you, I want to read you something he wrote. The creation of a nation dedicated to the proposition that every individual has the same rights to liberty and the same innate human dignity as everyone else was an unprecedented world historical event. But I fear that we are nearing a point of no return. Um, Charles Murray's my guest. Uh, again, he's a Hayek Emeritus Scholar of the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C. Charles, thanks for joining us again. Right, this pleasure. is a very big, big topic, and so let's just jump in. Your book, uh, Facing Reality, you talk Facing Reality about, about the races? About what? Okay, let's start with the, the clip that you just played of the woman who was, and I, I gather she was black herself. She the, was, yes. Clip, yes. Who was condemning CRT uh, as, as being racist. I think that if you had an honest poll of blacks and Latinos and Asians and whites, that her viewpoint is shared by some extremely large majority of every single one of those groups. I think we are letting, uh, first, some extremists, with the support of the New York Times and the Washington Post and ABC, NBC, and CBS, I think they are drowning out everybody else who wants to stay with the traditional ideal of treating people as individuals and doing our best to be colorblind. So let's have that as a backdrop. Why did I have to write the book? Because last July, during the protests and the riots, those mainstream outlets parroted the uh, systemic racism charges uncritically. They were saying, uh, what else can it be that is causing these differences in policing in black neighborhoods? What else can it be that is keeping uh, Google from having a sufficient number of uh, black senior executives. And I'm saying to myself, can't, can't the New York Times bring itself to mention that, that a lot of this isn't racism. A lot of this is the result of reality on the ground, two realities on the ground. And those realities are as follows. And by the way, I'll say them very bluntly, and then we can talk about all the, the nuances after that. With policing, when a police officer is in a low-income black neighborhood, he or she is functioning in an environment that is multiple times more dangerous than the environment in an upper-middle-class white suburb. And good policing by competent, responsible police officers will be different in an environment in which the, the danger of violent responses is greater. Okay? I'm not saying there are no racist cops. I am saying that you will inevitably see major differences in policing in the environment that, uh, that they're working in. With regard to the employment market and the labor market, the statement is that in a completely non-racist society, an absolutely fair society 
which race doesn't enter into employment decisions, it would still be the case that Google wouldn't have very many black senior employees. It's a function of the pipeline of available persons coming through in which the number of people who are qualified for those jobs uh, is not as great as the demand for them. The reality is not that U.S. corporations are racist. The reality is they would love to have more minority employees, whether they are Latino or, or black, but there aren't enough good to go around. And that's the result of differences in cognitive ability for whatever causes they may be, the causes aren't, aren't important. Differences in cognitive ability that exist right now and have to be recognized. Let's go back to the law and order thing, the policing. Uh, I think, were you with Manhattan Institute for a while? Yes, that was uh, in the 1980s. Yeah, well, Heather McDonald, you know, has done so much writing on uh, the rates of crime in the black community and the, you know, listen, Charles, I've, I have, well, this, this is the white thing to say. I have a lot of black friends. I do. And uh, they would all say, I think, especially though, I'm from Chicago originally, uh, that in these troubled neighborhoods, they're, they're not fooled. They know they have a huge crime rate. This is not news to them. So, but what about your own research on this? How can you make your point? You're a, kind of a scientist, MIT grad, yeah. uh, that, that crime is worse in those neighborhoods. This is not rocket science. Uh, there's not elaborate statistical analysis. It's as simple as this, uh, Sandy. Several cities, including New York City, Chicago, Los Angeles, Washington, D.C., and, and about half, about nine others have released their arrest records for the last several years, which include the race of the person arrested. So in the case of New York City, they go from 2006 to 2019. We're talking over well over 100,000 violent arrests. So you simply you take the number of black arrestees divided by the black population and the number of white arrestees divided by the white population, to get rates. And the rates in a place like New York City are uh, 11.6 times the rate of blacks, 11.6 times that of whites. All right. Uh, that is just simply the way the numbers are. And as you pointed out, this does not come to as news to people living in the black inner city or the Latino inner, inner city, for that matter. It's just a statement of fact. You know, I'd be curious. I don't know if you have this stat. Because I don't think I've ever asked us uh, the difference between the crime rate in the Latino community versus the black. Do you know right offhand? Yeah, we, well, I've I went through all of those too. So it's it's there's still disproportionate. Let's go with New York City again. The uh, ratio of Latino uh, violent crime to white violent crime is four point one to one. So it's not nearly as high as the eleven point six ratio in New York, but it's still significant. But this is mostly true, I find this rather interesting, in the biggest cities. Once you get down to smaller cities, uh, like uh, Fort Lauderdale, Florida, or uh, Urbana, Illinois, places like that, there's very little difference. I, I suspect that the, and I say suspect because I don't have enough cities to demonstrate this, that the Latino-white difference in small cities is pretty insignificant. So this is really, I think, the point you're trying to make that you're making well is that this is kind of an insidious lie, and also it's and it's we're being forced to parrot it, and uh, black 
Americans don't dare say anything to the contrary publicly. In fact, I know for a fact, because my husband's uh, law enforcement, was law enforcement for years, that uh, in the black community, people are scared to death, not only the criminals among them, but they're scared to death to out those criminals. Uh, they know they're well, there, and they, yeah, so go ahead. Well, we've seen in New York in the recent mayoral election, the big issue was uh, more policing, not less. They want more policing, not less. And it was the the uh, uh, precincts in Upper Manhattan, which are largely minority, and in places in Queens, which are minority. It, it goes back to what I said earlier. Just as I think the vast majority of black uh, uh, Americans and Latino Americans are still in favor of the traditional American ideal of colorblindness and treating people as individuals, I think the vast majority of them are in favor of, of good policing and protecting people from predators. This doesn't mean there aren't problems with police. In, in talking about these topics, you always have to step back and say, look, are there things that, that need to be reformed among the police? Yeah. Are there even systemic problems with the police? Yes. But it's not systemic racism. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. My my husband gets um, gets furious when policemen. He was not a policeman; he was FBI, but he worked with the police in Chicago and Los Angeles and D.C. Uh, and so, you know, they, there's a lot in common between those two groups of people. And uh, he gets so furious when people uh, paint police with that broad swath of racism. And you know, we can see Charles with our own eyes. Uh, I have seen. I'm sure you have too. Video after video after video. Now a policeman. Uh, who have been, I'd say, challenged, I'll put it that way, uh, by a black, uh, um, whatever, they've stopped them for traffic or they've stopped them for attempted robbery, whatever. And you see the policeman, um, and it, black black and white policemen, hold, um, just uh, illustrating incredible self-control. Incredible. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't yeah. even know how they do it. Well, the problem is, is this, that you have... Videos that are showing criminal behavior by police, uh, you don't shoot unarmed people that are walking away from it, you know, uh, and, and those are real. It's understandable that they go viral, but there are tens of thousands of body cameras on police all over the country every day, and I wish there was some way that we could have a representative sample of those body cameras uh, that also would go viral, because what they would show is first, in most encounters, there's no problem at all involving race. But in lots of others, you will see uh, white cops exhibiting enormous restraint when they have obscenities being screamed at them or when there's a threat of violence. <laughs> I, I'm happy to see bad police officers disciplined when they're bad and criminal police officers imprisoned when they're criminal. But I want people to recognize that the the mainstream relationships between police officers and minorities in this country have made enormous progress over the last 70 years, incomparable progress. Yes, I, I would agree. And we've watched a lot of that unfold. Uh, we are in a different place. You know, as I told you in passing, uh, Chicago's home. home, And uh, we, we watch with horror to see the bloodshed. There was bloodshed when I was living there. Uh, and now it's just increased exponentially. And my heart just grieves for my black friends in those communities. 
It's just, it's the saddest thing. So they're the ones that are being hurt the most by this lie. And the second, okay, so you talk about two truths. The second truth, let's talk about that one. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, and boy, are we heading into territory where people misrepresent what's going on. There is a difference in means, Sandy, in averages uh, between the different races on mental tests. If the word IQ is unpleasant to you, then think in terms of tests of reading and writing achievement and uh, the differences that exist there. And if you want to say, well, that means we've got to do better in raising the scores, okay, fine, go ahead and try. Although, no child left behind was a pretty (laughs) substantial effort to do that. But never mind that. Let's go ahead and try to reduce the differences. The problem is that differences in test scores have implications for large groups of people in job performance and performance in the classroom. And here's where people need to understand differences in means do not sort races into different bins, all right? And the way I usually put it accurately is millions of black people are smarter than millions of white people. And that goes all the way to the, the, the most brilliant categories of all. There are plenty of black people in that. But if you talk, and so if you're talking about individuals, you know virtually nothing about how smart a person is by looking at the color of their skin. It adds very little to your knowledge because the, the, the differences within uh, populations are so great. But if you have a thousand people being hired for a given job, uh, I don't care what the job is, let's say it's accountants. And uh, 500 of them are black and 500 of them are white. If we had a truly non-racist labor market, there would be no differences in their test scores, the people who were hired. Because if we were truly in a non-race conscious hiring environment, employers would be choosing people who are qualified for the job. They, They judge them on the same basis, and you'd end up with the same test scores on average among those two groups of people. That's not what happens. We practice aggressive affirmative action. And that means that employers are hiring people because of the color of their skin who they would not hire if they were white. That's just a statement of fact. And the result that produces is that we replicate the difference in means in the general population than the people who are counting. So you have substantially lower IQs, mean IQs among black accountants and white accountants. That is, to me, one of the worst examples of an unnecessary social problem that we have brought on ourselves. Okay, so Charles, we need to come back and follow up on that, obviously. That requires a lot of questioning, so we're going to do that. This uh, book is called The Two Truths About Race in America, and uh, Charles Murray is my guest. This is really fascinating, and there's been talk about the differences of ability for a long time, it's always controversial, and it as well it should be, and especially in an environment like this. And Charles, when we come back, I'm going to ask you how you've remained alive all this time after saying what you just said. So we, we have to talk about that. This is Sandy Rios sure. in the morning on AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. You talk about critical race theory, which is pretty much going to be teaching kids how to hate each other. 
how to dislike each other. That's pretty much what it's going to, that's pretty much, I don't care what it's pretty much what it's going to all come down to. You're going to deliberately teach kids, this white kid right here got it better than you because he white? You're going to purposely tell a white kid, oh, the black people are all down and suppressed. How do I have two medical degrees if I'm sitting here oppressed? How do I get, first of all, let's sign up, because I only got five minutes now, not five minutes. Two medical degrees. No mom, no dad in the house. Worked my way through college. Sat there and hustled my butt off to get through college. You going to tell me somebody looked like all y'all white folks kept me from doing that? Are you serious? Not one white person ever came to me and said, well, son, you're never going to be able to get nowhere because you know the black people. But guess what? What's sickening about this whole thing is what y'all doing right now is already something I do in my community right now to speak out against stuff because black folks are getting told by other black folks, oh, you know you ain't going to be able to do nothing out there in the world because them white folks ain't going to let you get nowhere. Oh, you know you're not going to be able to do it here because you know, white, the, the white man, the white man going to keep you down. Well, how did I get where I am right now if some white man kept me down? How am I now directing over folks that look just like you guys in this room right now? How? What, what, what kept me down? What oppressed me? I work for myself from off the streets to where I am right now. You gonna sit here and tell me this lie of critical race theory? Of uh, this, this, this the reason why black folks can't get ahead because of white folks? Are you kidding me? This is what we come to now. I can't believe we're even talking about this right now. The last thing I'm gonna say right here is something that's crazy. Martin Luther King said he wanted his kids to grow up in a world where they are judged by the contents of their what? Character. Their character, not their skin. If they let this stuff go on right now, it is absolutely doing the complete reverse of what he's doing. So when February comes, don't talk about Martin Luther King. When February comes, don't talk about black kids. The mother dog will sit there and just pee, pee on his grave with this nonsense. That's exactly what's about to happen. All right, so that's a father, a black father who's quite upset in Loudoun County, Virginia, just last week. Uh, and you heard what he said. If, uh, if white people are keeping me down, how did I get two medical degrees? Uh, he's quite exercised. And we're talking with Charles Murray about his new book, which is called uh, uh, facing reality, two truths about race in America. And we're talking about the second one, which is probably the, the most controversial that Charles has written. And so, Charles, my understanding is you're saying that um, you're talking about the race. You say that the races are not all the same in terms of IQ. Uh, I think I you would say that Asian uh, uh, Asian score exponentially. Asian score, Asian score higher. Sandy, you know, we want to make this as simple as possible. Okay. And to make it as simple as possible, the first thing it's necessary to do is to set aside questions of what the causes are. Because when you talk about the causes of the difference in test scores, you, ha uh, you have, of course, a huge sensitive area of, oh, is it genetic or is it environmental? I have been writing, starting with the bell curve, but I've said this many times since, that's the wrong way to think about it. Uh, the question right now, in terms of policy, is to recognize that the differences exist for whatever reasons. And we can say, well, we want to get rid of them. That's fine. If you can figure out ways to do it, more power to you. But what exists is the topic of this book. So a few minutes ago, I said that if you take, well, I'm talking about actual data, not hypothetical data. If you look at the people who have jobs as accountants in some large databases and you have that hard number, my occupation is accountant, okay, that's the response you've got. And then you have their test score on a test of cognitive ability, okay? You may say, oh, that test score is biased, but we can talk about that another time. There is, when you add all those up, a difference in test scores. In the specific case of accountants, the mean IQ of people holding jobs in accountants in this database, which has a total of 20,000 people, 
for for uh, whites, it's 111. For African uh, Americans, it's 100. And for Latino Americans, it's 104. This does not mean you don't have terrific black accountants or terrific Latino accountants. You do. But if you're talking about among the accountants that are marginal or worse, are they going to be disproportionately black and Latino? Yes, they will. That is not something that is the product of a racist imagination. It is not the product of elaborate statistical procedures. It's just simply going with the demonstrated relationship between test scores and job performance. And that's the way it is. And I will also repeat something I said earlier. It is entirely artificial. If we really said to employers, stop the affirmative action, make sure that you give a fair shake to people who come to your to your office for a job interview, no matter what their color or sex or anything else may be. You try do your very, very best to hire people that are the most qualified by objective standards, and you're not going to have race differences and cognitive scores among the people who come to work in your office. You're going to have people who are all equally distributed, more or less, across all of the qualifications for the job. Wouldn't so, that be a wonderful world to live in? It would, and I, I just want to, let me make sure I understand. You are saying, or imp- implying, that this is not a, it's not because of the, we don't know why it is. We, we don't know if we it's environment. Know it, Certainly, we just know the difference exists, yeah. Yes, right. So we don't, I mean, you're not saying that it's because people are black, because they're Mexican. It's because of, it can be a, a number of things. And you also said that, I want to repeat, that there are brilliant people of all colors. Uh, it's just that, and the broad swath of things, with given the factors of everything, environment, all of that, uh, this is these are the hard facts of how they're performing on tests. So, well, and, and so, so it isn't. It, that's is fair enough. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. And I, I guess what I'm saying to people is, okay, you've got to make a choice. If you say that you are in favor of aggressive affirmative action, in which people of color get preference over white people in terms of who gets hired, despite having independently of the qualifications. If you insist on wanting to have that, be aware of the prices that are built into that. And one of the prices is that if you hire people with different mean qualifications, you're going to get different mean performance. There's no way around it. And the second thing that's going to happen, and you've got to accept it, is that every single white person in an organization, when a blackface or a Latino hire shows up, a question in their mind is, well, is this a, an affirmative action hire? Mm-hmm. Now, that is something that you will not hear many people say out loud. But I will tell you this, Andy. Any white people who say that doesn't cross their mind when they see a new black employee or Latino employee, I suggest they examine themselves very carefully to see if they are telling the truth. You know, and Charles- this is a cost that we bear for a policies that we don't have to maintain. Well, then the other side of that is, uh, um, I'll take Justice Clarence Thomas, for example, since I, since I know him. Um, I think he's probably written this. He came up at a time where there was no affirmative action. So he did very well and got ahead and achieved what he's achieved. He's a brilliant guy. The problem for him is that 
people look at him and assume he got where he is because of affirmative action when he didn't. It had nothing to do with that. And so yeah. it has a reverse effect of on achie- high-achieving people of color. Yeah, so, um, you know, I was just going to mention some other— you probably heard about this um, since you live near D.C. I think it's uh, Loudoun County or Fairfax. They have—or maybe it's Alexandria— that it's Thomas Jefferson uh, STEM school. It's the highest rated in the country, science, mm-hmm. technology, uh, engineering, and math. Um, and they, uh, I, I, I've got to be careful because I'm not sure about it exactly, but they have somehow put a limit on the number of Asian students that can be admitted because yes. they're performing too high and there are too many of them in the school. So yes. your thoughts about yeah, that? Well, it makes my blood boil. Uh, is that there's a Bl- de Blasio in New York City wanted Stuyvesant High School to do the same thing, to put quotas. Look, these Asian kids who are performing so superbly and getting admitted, are some of them the, the sons and daughters of Asian physicians and so forth? Yeah, some of them are, but a lot of them are the children of immigrants who came here with nothing yes. and uh, whose parents didn't even speak English, and they are they are living... They are embodying what America is supposed to be about. And the policies that say, no, we are going to punish them for their race because of their race. And that's what they're doing if they're limiting Asian uh, admissions to these uh, magnet schools. You know, uh, let me they're give you a trying to justify that. And, and this, the same thing is going on with critical race theory, which is turning the American creed on its head. American Creed, I'm old enough to know when that was still a common phrase. Most listeners are not. The American Creed was all about treating people as individuals, judging them on the basis of what they present, as opposed to any of their group memberships. Critical race theory and identity politics says exactly the opposite, that the power of the state should be used to give preference to our people and to punish people who aren't part of our people. And that is, if you'll pardon the expression, un-American. Yeah. You know, uh, it's interesting you should say that, because as you were saying what the American creed is, that people should be treated as individuals, it reminds me that that is a principle of Scripture. That's a biblical principle. No uh, other—I don't think any other faith doctrine teaches that. Our founding fathers were, of course, Christian, and that that, that God looks on everyone as an individual— uh, as opposed to some collective, which is, uh, you know, what communism looks at. It really is a very unique approach for a government to do that. And we have lost it. We're losing it all the time. We are morphing into the notion that uh, it's just what's good, the common good or uh, what's good for the group, or we really have lost sight of the importance of individualism. And that then bleeds over into life itself uh, and issues of abortion. But anyway... Uh, just an interesting thing that triggered that thought. Hey, I want to ask you something. Uh, I, this is personal. I hope you don't mind me asking you. But I, um, I, I read on your bio that you are a Quaker. Is that right? I am a fellow traveler. <laughs> my <laughs> wife is, my wife is uh, a very active Quaker. And by active, I don't mean social activism active. I mean religiously active. And uh, I now describe myself as a Christian. I've been evolving for a long time. Uh, from agnostic uh, to a believer, and I still think I'm probably on the shaky side of the uh, of the spectrum there, but uh, it's been a process. So yes, uh, I've spent a lot of time in Quaker meetings and around Quakers, and, and one of the major influences in my change has been how impressed I've been with them. 
You know, it's a, I have a very good friend who's a C.S. Lewis scholar who was just in my home a couple of weeks ago who is a Quaker. And we had the most fascinating discussion about that. But uh, I, I appreciate your honesty, uh, Charles, because uh, C.S. Lewis, of course, was on that journey too. And he was, the problem you have is that you're an honest intellectual. And so it kind of often leads down that path of embracing God because, after all, it is true. And so it's kind of hard to resist it, uh, hard to say no when you're an honest intellectual. But that's just an interesting other part of your story. Who is this book written for, and what do you hope to achieve by writing it? Well, it was actually written for people on the center left because of, you know, the polarization, political polarization is huge. And an awful lot of people on the center left do not buy into uh, the identity politics. A lot of them are people who gave money to the ACLU when the ACLU years ago was defending every kind of civil rights, no matter whose ox was being gored. Uh, they are the kind of people who believe in the American creed, in people being treated as individuals. And I want people on the center left to say, look, uh, we are in danger of losing this aspect of what has made America special and you've got to start saying out loud that you believe in the American creed. And people on the right have got to start saying out loud, hey, a lot of people on the left uh, believe and love America as much as we do. And in a variety of other ways, it's really important right now that we stop the extremes from drowning out a, the vast majority of Americans who still want America to represent what it historically has made it special. Charles, I just was thinking, reflecting on what you said, and I think I was just thinking about that dad who said he had three medical degrees and he was not kept down. I think about what you said about uh, the, uh, in terms of the mean Asian people score so much higher. So do Jewish people. You talked about that. Yeah, um, yeah. So does that, is that a reason for white Americans to be discouraged because it's kind of hopeless because Chinese and, you know, and Jews no. are so much smarter? No, no, I, mean, no, no, no. no I know, I know it isn't. I know it isn't. So my point is for my black listeners to not take this as a, a thing to uh, be have your in, enthusiasm and your ambitions thwarted. It's a reason to join in. We're all going to do our very best regardless of what our limitations are, not because yeah. of race, but because of all the other reasons. But um, if you treat people as individuals, these problems go away. I love it. I love it. Okay, it's Facing Reality author Charles Murray. Charles, thank you so much. This has been delightful. Sandy Rios in the morning, AFR Talk.